Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And today we have a really special podcast because we're able to speak with Professor Jennifer Thompson. And Dr. Thompson is an emeritus professor in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology in the University of Cape Town but also served as president of the Organization for Women in Science for the Developing World and has been an outstanding proponent and leader in the area of technology and advocacy and enabling uh, especially programs for women throughout the developing world. So thank you very much for joining me today. Fine. It's good to be here, Kevin. It's been wonderful to have this opportunity. We've had um, opportunity to speak together at different conferences here and there and uh, I've always wanted to have you on the podcast so this is great if we could start out by talking about um, Africa now you're you're from the African continent what is the current state of genetic engineering in Africa in terms of the, the countries that have adopted the technologies and which technologies they've adopted it's as was in the 1990s and South Africa grows Almost, I'd say, between 80 and 90 percent of its maize is GM, and many of the Africans in South Africa and elsewhere on the continent eat maize three times a day, maize being corn in uh, Europe, in uh, USA uh, lingo. Um, and we also have uh, insect-resistant cotton and um, soybeans and um, herbicide-tolerant soybeans. The only country in Africa, apart from South Africa, that is currently commercializing GM crops are Sudan. And those are mainly in the cotton area and not on uh, for edible plants. And this is largely because the well-fed developed countries have told in many cases, straight out lies about the effects of GM crops. And uh, as a result, the decision makers are very wary of moving into this field. And it's particularly Europe and the Scandinavian countries, because these are the countries that African leaders look to. First of all, most of their aid comes from these countries. A lot of them send their kids to uh, higher education there. And uh, certainly the exports from Africa go there. So with the uh, incredibly negative stance in Europe, uh, that has a major impact on decision makers in Africa. Now, some people will say, well, it's because there is export issues that if you use GE crops in Africa, that you'll lose the opportunity to sell crops to, say, the EU or maybe other countries that uh, or regions which don't accept those technologies. So is that really an issue or 
uh, is it really more about the fear-based messaging that comes from those places? Uh, certainly, it's the fear-based messaging because, for instance, South Africa can export wherever it likes of its uh, GM crops. And in the uh, early days when uh, Namibia, which is a big beef producing country, uh, was told by certain uh, people or groups in the EU that they wouldn't be able to sell their beef in the EU if it was fed South African GM maize. And that has, not been, has certainly not proven to be the case. So it's definitely the personal fear base. Um, I was recent, recently in Tasmania, uh, Australia, uh, talking to them about the, they have a moratorium and it's now coming up for review, moratorium on all GMOs. And uh, I was telling them the problems we have in Africa and I happened to have dinner with two PhD students, one from Zimbabwe and one from Kenya, and I gave them a copy of my uh, last book on GM crops, and uh, they looked at me in horror and said, but GM crops give you cancer. Now, that is absolutely untrue, and yet this is a very deeply felt uh, issue in many African countries. Worse still, I don't know if it's worse still, but um, Greenpeace, and I've got a slide that shows this, Greenpeace has been showing pictures of, um, of, of banners in which they say that if you eat GM crops, you will become sterile. Now, to say that to an African man is anathema. So, so influences like this are very hard to gain say. It's the it's the it's it's all very well to say, oh, we can tell you the truth, but that message will linger on in the minds of African men. Is it really just Greenpeace, or are there other organizations that are also propagating the same kinds of messaging? Oh no, there are many different ones. I don't have a list at the moment, but there's BioWatch in, in South Africa and, and many others. It's certainly not just Greenpeace. And so what are some of the major problems that um, exist right now? And I know there, there's you know many different layers, and, you know, and to categorize Africa as a common monolith is a total mistake. But if you were to look across the continent, are there specific problems where a GM crop remedy exists that cannot be adopted? Absolutely. Um, cowpea is a very big uh, crop, a major protein crop in West Africa. Uh, the technology for insect resistance, because it's decimated by a Maruka beetle that uh, kills it, and um, sorry, it's a Maruka insect, and um, and we've had it available for at least six years, and uh, no, nope, some of them will allow limited field trials. But you take one step forward. I mean, Nigeria says at one stage, said at one stage that they were going to allow commercialization. They've backtracked. It's the anti-GMO lobby gets to them as soon as it looks as if they're coming close. I'll give you an example in Kenya, too, of, of um, Western influence. Um, there was a study that was done by a French group um, and... Uh, they showed potential. They 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 said they had shown that GM crops, maize in particular, corn, gave rats tumors. And 
Subsequently, that paper was withdrawn because it was so badly done. For instance, uh, they didn't have the correct controls, and the strain was one that got, got get cancer in uh, tumors within two years. And so all the uh, safety tests are done on them for 90 days, which all the toxicologists say gives you the right uh, results if the if the substance is going to cause cancer. Uh, so this group in France decided, oh, 90 days wasn't good enough, we'll do it for two years. Well, of course, they're bred to have tumors in two years. And if you don't have the correct controls, you can make the wrong, come to the wrong conclusions, as was shown when the journal withdrew the paper. But do you think that will be erased from people's minds? Absolutely not. Yes, I remember that was the famous Seralini paper back in 2012. Yeah, and recently in our episode number 182, we did a podcast. We, we spoke with Francis Onyakachi about um, the Maruka situation and the resistant cowpea. And uh, I was actually very fortunate to be able to travel to Uganda and be able to go up to the research park and see the uh, wilt-resistant bananas and the vitamin A bananas and or the you know the beta-carotene bananas, and we were there at a historic moment when the science and technology minister got Parliament to be able to begin the process to deregulate them, and I was so happy, and uh, the president vetoed it. <laughs> so That's we were the problem, you see. Yes, it's. I mean, even even with the GMO bill in Uganda. The whole of parliament passed it, but the president refused to sign it. That's it. So it was. So you you have one person who stops the progress. Precisely, and the same was true in that at the Seralina case in Kenya, because the minister of health ha was a cancer survivor, and she went to the uh, president and said, "We must stop all GMO imports and work." And he did that um, single-handedly without even referring to a biosafety regulatory group in Kenya, and it's still not been rescinded. It still hasn't been. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So, yeah. so, so that paper with those rats without the appropriate controls still has impacts in a place like Kenya that would have tremendous benefit from, well, well let's ask you that question. What would be the major technologies that would be able to help Kenyans? Oh, it would be in maize. The Ugandans are slightly different because their staple food is plantains or bananas, but Kenya's is is maize. Yeah, and they they have. Um, what are some of the problems they have there in maize? Well, it's the same as the problems right here in South Africa. It's um, it's insect uh, damaging, and it's also lost to weeds. Now, um, the I was talking to a farmer recently, happens to be in South Africa, saying that uh, they have been, they've turned to um, GM maize uh, five years ago. Then their yields was eight tons per hectare. It is now 18 tons per hectare. But she says not, it's not just the increase in yield, but it's the decrease in the use of spraying that was just toxic to, to everything. How, how bad is the problem of fall armyworm? Oh, that's huge. That's huge. And uh, be, some of the BTs can, uh, can counteract that. But um, 
of course, it's not being used. So Kenya and Uganda, the whole of East Africa, Zimbabwe, all of them, they could use that. Yeah, I heard that there was some use of of BT uh, crops in South Africa that do have some effect on fall armyworm, but the whole thing needs to be revised um, because it, it just isn't an, it isn't the right BT or the correct BT for fall armyworm. And has there been additional research that's happening there on the continent in uh, fall armyworm mitigation? The trouble is, why spend the expense, try to take the expense of doing the research when you can't commercialize it? I guess that's the big question, is that people hear the word commercialization and they think, well, it's all big companies that are exploiting the African continent. And no. Not at all. Not at all, because the, the, in in South a in Africa we have an organisation called the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, and they are there to transfer intellectual property from multinationals to African farmers and seed companies, royalty free. So we can get it free, but what is the incentive to do that if you can't? commercialize it, sell it as at the normal price. It's just, you know, and sell it, buy it from Kenya seed companies, Ugandan seed companies, who would be the, um, who would receive it from the multinationals and sell it on royalty free. But there is no incentive because they can't sell them. It's something that really has bothered me because so much of the good research is actually being done there on the continent as well. Especially, you know, but you look at the work by folks like Lena Tripathi and, and uh, excellent work in Nigeria. And, and the hands are tied because of a regulatory problem that's been imposed by Western interests. It's as simple as that. Let me give you an, a different example of where the opposite is happening in South Africa. Because we can commercialize crops, GM crops in South Africa, um, I've been working, my lab has been working for many years on the development of potentially drought-tolerant maize. And we have a grant from government to take that to glasshouse trials and, if it's successful, to, to field trials with the ultimate aim of commercializing it. Now, that's being done through the government. So the seed company who will have, South African seed company, who will have first option on commercialization will not have to charge the same amounts as uh, excess they can, because they haven't had to do the research themselves. We've done it at the university. So it's a public enterprise uh, um, process and no multinationals are involved at all. But that's simply because the South African government allows the commercialization. So the seed company will be able to sell it for the same price as any other improved seed that they sell that is high yielding or whatever the trait may be. It seems like there was some traction for the drought-resistant maize that was starting to happen in certain regions, but is that all just being done by traditional breeding, or are there some GE solutions that could work as well? There are both. Um, the, it's called the WEMA project, the Water Efficient Maize for Africa, and that has been spearheaded by the same African agricultural technology. They are being tested in many parts. They are, are being tested in... Uh, some of the countries that will allow it, so in Uganda and uh, South Africa, obviously, Madagascar now, uh, Kenya, to some extent, they're still a little bit 
uh, wary of even field trials, but there are a number of countries that are doing that. That seems like another technology that would be excessively, would be welcome. And when you look at the, the um, traditional breeding side, and I was able to see some of this stuff there last year, and it looked really impressive, and it really was seeming to make an impact. And if the traditional breeding side is going okay, then why do we need genetic engineering? Because different things work in different places, and we must actually have every available technology we can have. Because, you know, we've got, for instance, um, insect-resistant lines that are bred for insect resistance, and they've been developed in a certain area of the continent. If you move them to a, a low line or a drier area, they might not work. So because uh, traditional breeding, conventional breeding, is very area-specific, Whereas if you put the gene, you could put it into varieties that are specific for highlands, for lowlands, for wetlands, for drylands, because you could just transfer the gene more readily. So it might might have looked, the conventional um, um, drought-resistant maize might have looked good in that area, but if you transfer it to another place, it might not look as good. I see. And I guess the other big question when we talk about places like Africa in the West and we talk about technology for Africa, one of the other frequent comebacks we get is, well, we have enough food. The problem is you just have a problem with distribution. And how much is that is true, and how much of it is really just kind of a Western hubris that feels they should be imposing their food desires on other people? Um, it's, it's a huge problem of transport. Um, certainly there might be enough food produced in certain countries, but those Western countries that those people are talking about have got trains and roads and everything. Whereas in Africa, the roads, sometimes the potholes are big enough to drown a camel. And, uh, you know, there's a very minimal train um, uh, system in many of these countries. So we simply do not have the infrastructure to transfer food around. The food has to be made where the people, uh, has to be grown and produced where the people are. And is that really the best solution rather than uh, trying to come up with more um, logistical types of solutions? It, it seems like it would be. Yeah, that's why I say GM is not a magic bullet. It should be together with improving the infrastructure and the transport and everything. It should also be done with educating mothers because women who um, are educated generally have fewer children and they are able to feed their, their uh, children better. So it's, there's no uh, magic bullet in this game. It's a, it's a multifaceted approach we must take. And, and a lot of it can be that women are, are critical in this whole process. And uh, by helping women to understand and to use these technologies is, is going to be a huge of huge benefit in Africa. Well, that's a really good point to take a brief, brief break. We'll be back in just a moment with Professor Jennifer Thompson. She's an emeritus professor in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. If you've been reading on the internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech podcast is funded. I can see why. I mean, this would come up again and again. 
makes a high-quality, professionally produced podcast like this must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. Well, I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and my pick of the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. But that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck. It's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Folda personally. And no outside funding is considered. Go ahead. Try us. Send us a check for a million dollars and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words, the growing numbers of downloads, and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Professor Jennifer Thompson. She's an emeritus professor in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And we left on the other side talking about the roles of women and how the technology can particularly benefit women on the continent. And are there any particular cases where you can point out where the, the lack of reliable uh, food sources have really strong impacts on, on women in particular? Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a, 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 an example that points out the problem of not always having water on tap. Um, because in the before GM crops, if you had to spray with herbicide or insecticide, uh, you had to mix them. So first of all, you, the, very often the farmers would mix these in with water in a Coke bottle or something that was readily available. And at the end of the uh, process, they would often just throw the Coke bottle away. And then what happens to Coke bottles lying around? Kids get hold of them and fill them with water to drink. And there's insecticide or uh, herbicide in it, which is can be harmful. Not so much the herbicides, but the pesticides. And then... Um, you have to mix it with water, and water doesn't always come out of a tap in Africa. So who fetches the water? It's the women and the girls. So the women have to spend their time going to water holes and, and collecting water, uh, which prevents them from getting on with other household chores, planting vegetables, and the, and the girls have to stay out of school. So there's a knock-on effect in Africa of uh, having to deal with pests. And uh, the other... Um, thing in, in Africa is that there are things called men's crops and women's crops. Now, men's crops make money and women's crops feed people. And uh, early on in the uh, life of the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, we were supporting the improvement of the yield of bananas in, um, in Uganda uh, using just tissue culture. That was not a GM issue, but the, the net result was very fascinating because as soon as the hands, that's the, how you term uh, the, the clumps of bananas, at as, as soon as they, they increased in size from being sort of a, a meter, a half a meter, a quarter of a meter to a meter and more, um, they changed from being women's crops to men's crops. And the women farmers were quite angry with us because they, we had uh, 
messed up their whole uh, system of farming. So we've learned our lesson from that. And we always now take the women into account before we do any uh, investigation of improved crops. And I'll give you another example. We're in uh, a woman uh, from a black subsistence farmer. Well, she wasn't a subsistence farmer. She was a small-scale farmer. There is a difference. Small-scale farmers can apply to the smallholder, small farmers in, in Europe, where their plots are small, but they are heavily um, treated with uh, uh, fertilizers and all sorts of things that South Africans are not afford. So, um, so a smallholder farmer and a subsistence farmer can be two very different things. So the, she is a smallholder farmer. She's not a subsistence farmer. But when she started growing GM maize, she got the same yield from half her, her fields. And so instead of planting the whole field, some of them she left to biodiversity, to the natural field, and some of them she uh, lent out to neighbors so that they could use the, the, the uh, soil that she didn't need because her yield had doubled. So um, women's attitudes to farming are often quite different from men's attitudes. And uh, this is not always the case in the developed world. That's true, because it seems like here, uh, at least in the industrialized world, most of the farmers are males, increasingly female. But in Africa, are most of the farmers women or are there still kind of uh, a mixture? There's a mixture, but it's becoming more and more the women. Um, because the men are finding um, more <laughs> exciting jobs in the cities. So what is the current state of what's happening with adoption of GE crops in, in these countries? Uh, well, I had an interesting time in Tasmania recently, and uh, it was a good example of um, how, how facts can be twisted. So, for instance... I spoke at this particular forum, public forum, um, on, I gave those two examples of the women's yields being increased in uh, using GM crops, that they, in the one case, had gone from uh, 8 to 18, and the other, it had doubled. And uh, then one of the anti-GMO speakers came after me, and she said, it's a known fact that GM crops can't increase yield. It's only the hybrids that increase it. So, I mean, that would confuse the audience terribly unless they, they knew that she was talking uh, uh, absolute nonsense because the genes are put into hybrids because hybrids are tough and high yielding. But without the added gene, you wouldn't have the increase in yield over and above what the hybrid got. So, you know, the audience was nodding sagely as she said this. And uh, I felt like saying, but that's a lie. Um, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the hazard of having somebody go after you in a talk <laughs> or in a, well, any it, kind of or in, in an interview, because it happens to me all the time that I'll say, you know, these are one strategy that can help us increase uh, food security. And then someone will come on next and say, well, you can't believe anything he says. He's a liar who works for Monsanto. Game over. Right. Right, game over. Yes, I had a, a slightly different experience in the oh uh, about twenty years ago now. I was speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I was asked to be on television with Vanda Shiva, who is a well-known uh, 
anti-GMO activist. And I can't remember exactly what it was she said, but I turned to the interviewer and I said, but that's a lie. And he took absolutely no notice and went back on to asking her further questions. So, uh, yeah, it's very difficult. She's a notorious one for that, too. I know that people have uh, been to her talks, and at the end, if she takes questions, they'll ask, is there any technology or any um, application of biotechnology that you would agree with? And she'll completely deflect and talk about something completely, uh, completely different. Really? Yeah, and, and she actually spoke here in the state of Florida where we have problems with citrus greening. And, you know, literally 10 miles from where she was speaking, farmers are closing their farms and uh, family farms are suffering statewide. And she's telling this group of students that this is poison and that these new crops are dangerous. I mean, it is such a uh, misinformation um, source that's influencing younger generations that then are carrying that message forward. And it has particular impacts, you know, even here in the in, in the industrialized world. But that really resonates all the way into the developing world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, I gave you the example of the two PhD students I had dinner with, both of whom said, oh, but GM crops give you cancer. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty egregious. So tell me more about your next book that's coming up. Ah, this is called GM Crops, the West versus the Rest, in which I'm trying to point out how just insidious some of these uh, these uh, rumors and lies can be. But I'm also going to talk about where the developments are happening in the developing world and, and where things are hopeful. And so uh, I'm also tracing the history of the development of GM crops and also the whole question of right in the beginning when it was just GM bacteria. And so um, that's going to be quite an undertaking. I'm getting a lot of um, information from, um, there's a marvelous organization based at Cornell called the Alliance for Science. And it teaches, uh, it's a Bill and Melinda Gates funded uh, project where uh, every year they bring for three months to the campus journalists, groups of journalists from different countries in the developing world and uh, teach them about the science and how to market and how to run campaigns and all of that. And these people are a great source of information. They're sending me documented evidence of where uh, they are being, GM crops are being undermined by Western um, propaganda in many cases. I love the fellows at the Alliance for Science, the, the people they bring in from around the world and I've taken part in that, and it's been a eye-opening experience. And actually, one of the students is now here at the University of Florida pursuing a degree. Um, oh, one of the that's, fellows. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's the fellows who are giving me all the information. Yeah. Yeah, she actually is from Nigeria, and she I saw her last year in Uganda, or in 2017 in Uganda, and we had a great conversation. And she said, you know, I'd love to go back to school, and and we made it happen. She's actually funded in part through the Center for African Studies, and we have this joint opportunity to have a um, uh, to train somebody who really has a passion in getting a higher degree and then taking back to her um, original country that technology. So, oh, fantastic! Fantastic. Yeah. 
So it, it makes my, and she, you know, she's one of those folks who just appreciates everything and she makes me so happy just to talk to her. So by the and, way, one, one of my chapters is uh, very largely based on your, your info that you gave at um, Saskatoon. It's called The uh, Importance of Communication. And it's all to do with trust and understanding the other person's point of view. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, that's that's um, turned into really my centerpiece of the discussion now and all these different issues across science, whether we're talking about vaccines or climate vaccines, especially a problem here in the States. Yes, um, indeed. You know, we've got these measles outbreaks that are now happening across the country, and it all was because of an erosion in trust that started in the beginning. And you see that that's what's happening in Africa. You're able to see the undermining of trust by these organizations that come off as, as benevolent organizations to who are here to help you. Um, and they take away the trust that the science minded, uh, either whether it's scientists or whether it's politicians uh, who are working there, it, it, that's the basis of this. And how much of that trust is really due to that lapse of trust is due to uh, maybe kind of uh, uh, colonialism or any kind of uh, maybe older issues that still are around there on the continent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the book you're working on now is really just the fourth of the series. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the other ones? The the first one was called Genes for Africa. Uh, it was published way back in 2002, and it was just talking about how genetic engineering can happen. It was sort of like GMO 101, um, but it also had a very strong um, concentration on Africa and other developing worlds, other developing countries. The second one, oh, this one was quite amusing the way it started because um, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation at the time was Gordon Conway. And he wrote a, um, a book review for Nature on it. And he started out by saying this is a gem of a book, but he ended by saying not enough on the environment. And he's an ecologist. So um, I then went on to write Seeds for the Future, which is about uh, specifically genetically modified crops and the impact on the environment. And that was out in... Um, uh, that came out in 2006, and then in 2013, my uh, latest book was Food for Africa, rather a, um, a, 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 an excessively optimistic title, I felt, but my editor wanted it, and that was all about how my take on the development of GM crops in Africa. So some of the advantages and some of the disadvantages um, of, um, of being in the field and uh, because you've got to have a, you've got to have broad shoulders to be an activist in this field. Yeah, I agree. I, I know I saw the first two books. I read them ages ago, um, probably more than a decade ago now, and really did find them to be uh, very visceral that in terms of uh, – you, you, you feel the deficit that, that we can correct with technology and that we're blocking the technology from being there. And th that's really what's great about, you know, when you're writing these books and preparing this kind of work is do you think that, in, that we'll look back on this and really feel 
negative towards what happened? I mean, do you think that people that this will ever take on a a kind of a feeling of a beacon of here's the mistake we made by holding back technology from people? That would be great, but I'm not so sure that it's ever going to happen because, uh, you know, the, food is such an emotive issue. And when um, medicines are produced uh, by genetic modification, uh, it's sort of all or nothing. So people have to have them. And uh, so, for instance, one of the latest ones came out, uh, I heard it, I watched it on BBC News, that uh, there's a young girl in the UK who suffers from a um, bacterial infection that is very rare and is very debilitating and antibiotics don't help. Uh, so what they've been using are genetically engineered bacterial viruses, which are called bacteriophages to kill these bacteria and she says she she was on the on the uh, television just saying how different her life is but i can't see the anti-gmo lobby saying you can't have that uh because it's life-saving but food is a different sort of it's it's you know they, you are what you eat and uh so people feel that i'd rather have something quote unquote natural yeah, I thought a lot about this, and I think that it goes to the fact that when we talk about medicine, we're appealing to our cognitive synthesis. We're talking about a process that we are able to internalize and really think about, um, you know, and rationalize by using evidence because it's medicine. But when we talk about food, especially fear around food, that appeals more to the reptile brain. And that's part of the brain which makes those fast decisions around fear and 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 develops without cognitive um, processing. And that's so I really think interesting, yeah. It really boils down to this kind of system one, system two thinking that some authors like Dan Kahneman have talked about. And the idea is that that, that we that you can scare people to a lot, you can easily scare people about their food. It's harder to scare them about their medicine. And I've got a million cases of measles in this country to say otherwise. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. So there are specific, I suppose, vaccines is a specific type of medicine because you can't see the immediate effect. You can see the immediate effect on this young girl with a bacterial infection, but you can't, and you can see it in diabetes with insulin made in a, in a, a yeast. But with vaccines, you, you can only see the, the effect when other people get it and you don't. No, you hit the nail on the head. It's just something that if it's something you're you're not being affected by in a life and death situation, I would bet any of the uh, anti-GMO activists, Greenpeace, that they would readily accept any of these CAR-T therapies or any of these other advanced cancer therapies that are using genetic engineering. And I, I think that it really boils down to how does it affect me? How does um, that's the big part of the problem in Africa is that we're not there. Um, yes. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I felt very honored to have spent some time there and understand the problems a little bit better. So it's very different depending upon who you are and your perspective. And how do we, maybe that's our next job as communicators is connecting uh, people to um, what's actually happening with uh, better media. And maybe that's our next, our next mission, but. <laughs> okay.
Well, Professor Jennifer Thompson, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it, and I'm really glad we got together. And please keep um, keep me posted if something else comes up that we can talk about sometime. Thank you, Kevin. I certainly will. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes and share this with a friend. Most of all, help people understand that there are problems in the world that are really tremendous where technology can be a part of the solution. And that when we integrate biotechnology with other types of technologies, we can have potential solutions that are customized for those in need. I'm Kevin Fulpa. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.